I'm Mindy Bear, and you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast by Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. It's Robert Miller, and welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. This podcast is for all you dreamers out there. I want to help you to follow and succeed at your dream, just like I've succeeded at mine. I've told you that each episode begins with a different song of mine that's played underneath the introduction and at the ending of the episode. In today's episode, the song that I've chosen is called Stockbridge Fanfare. It's a song that's on the album East Side Sessions that was recorded and released by my band Project Grand Slam at the beginning of 2020. It's got a really cool country-type vibe to it, little James Taylor-type action going on. And I chose this song because it really relates well to my guest today. If you want to get a full download of this song, all you need to do is follow the link in the show notes. Okay? A free download of this song, just follow the link in the show notes. And I want to tell you something about my guest. My guest is Rich Redman. He's been the drummer for over 20 years with country music superstar Jason Aldean. He's played before millions of people all around the world. I'm jealous as can be. And he's gone on to have a career as well as a podcast host and an actor. So I want to welcome you, Rich Redman to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Good morning, my friend. Thanks for having me. I, I, we're, we're coming from the two palm tree states. You're in Florida. I'm in California. It's great. That's right. And I don't see any palm trees at all behind you. <laughs> I know. I got the, the New York skyline behind me. New York skyline. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll accept that. So, you know, this is a, a, a podcast about following your dream. So I ask every guest, was it your dream early on when you were young? to be a musician. Absolutely, man. I, I, uh, I was restless and high energy and I seemed to be hitting a lot of things. You know, everyone starts on the pots and pans and my dad got me drum lessons in 1976. Um, yeah, I was six years old. That started the whole journey, you know, how to hold the drumsticks and playing along with kiss records and queen records. And it's been quite a fun journey, man. It really has. But why the drums? You know, I think, uh, you know, some people are just, they just gravitate towards an instrument. It's like, I had a guitar at one time, but I played it like a drum. You know, (laughs) it was just the drums called me. You know, I think, I think uh, the instrument chooses us. That's probably true. So what was your first drum set? What was the, the manufacturer of that drum set? You know, it was, it was a, I think it was an off brand. Everyone starts with like either a practice pad because it's affordable. Parents can like, oh, this is 80 bucks and it's quiet and maybe he'll really take to it. And then you, maybe you go up to a snare drum. So I had like a little blue sparkle snare drum and like so many people that kick themselves that are like, why did I get rid of my first snare drum? Because probably sometime I couldn't pay the rent and things, you know, 
musicians are, you know, we live on a ramen noodle, usually the first 20 years. Right. And, um, and then after that, I had a little, little used bass drum, this little cracked cymbal. Uh, but my first real like man's instrument that was like, wow, thanks dad. It was just this beautiful, it looked like a sports car. It was a cherry red Yamaha stage custom drum set. Beautiful. And I just, just, I used to just spit shine it. Oh, I was so proud of that thing. A Yamaha set. Yeah, I was thought you were going to say Rogers because I knew a lot of guys that started out on Rogers drums. And yeah, actually, you know, in the seven, yeah, I was going to say when I started playing music, which was earlier than what you just mentioned. You know, this little band from Liverpool had just come out, and um, everybody went out to get a guitar. Okay, you had to have a guitar. I played trumpet before that, but trumpet wasn't very cool at that moment. So I got a guitar. My friends got guitars. We're all trying to teach ourselves how to play. But we knew that the band had a drummer. So we recruited a guy who was going to be our drummer. But he only had drum pads at that moment. So when you mentioned drum pads, I had this image in my head of us trying to play Beatles songs and him playing on the drum pads. That's hilarious. Yeah, I want to hold your hand. Yeah, 1964, that was the catalyst for so many people. And that was just right before my generation. You know, um, for me, it was like bands like, you know, The Police and Van Halen and, you know, John Mellencamp and Missing Persons. It, it was like a when I was coming into my own, it was like a, a true mix of of new wave. So different haircuts, different electronic instruments, electronic drums, and then all the heavy metal guys with the hair to their butt and the hairspray and, and that whole thing, the spandex. So it was an interesting time. You bet. You know, during that era, I kind of missed the police and it, it rankled the heck out of me when I finally discovered them because, you know, Stuart Copeland was a fantastic drum. They were all great musicians. And, yeah. uh, you know, finally, at least I caught up with them. Same thing with Queen. I, I kind of missed them during their era. My wife got into them and then I kind of discovered them. And, you know, that was another great group from that era, right? Totally, totally. And the movie is good. You know, the Freddie Mercury story, man, you'll, you'll laugh and you'll cry. That was, that's a good one. Yeah. That, that whole arena rock thing going on there, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So good. So did you start playing rock and roll? Oh yeah, totally. You know, this whole country thing is like totally out of my element. I'm a kid from Connecticut. So, you know, I was listening to all the, the bands, the stones, the who, the Beatles, the Led Zeppelin, the, like all the, the bands. And I, that's your kind of <laughs> Mount Rushmore of rock and roll. And really, you know, when I, when I started doing this, I mean, I'm an arena stadium drummer. I'm a showman. I'm, I like try to compare myself to like a, to like a Gene Krupa, like draw the people in and give them a show. And, um, but you know, as musicians, we want to work. And so I was open to everything. You mentioned wedding drummers. I talk to my students all the time and I say wedding drummers are fantastic because you have to be able to play music from like 1920 to like yesterday. And that's a lot of musical ground to cover. So you can learn so much. So when it was time for me to kind of like move to Nashville, I just got all everyone's greatest hits and I just treated it like very academically, very methodically. I checked out all the greatest hits. I studied that style, which allowed me to, play the Grand Ole Opry with people like Vince Gill or John Anderson or Pam Tillis or that gave me that permission. And then also, since I learned the rules, I was able to break the rules. When my band came along, we were the guys that started tuning and drop D and I was just slicing away on the cracking rim shots. I was like, are we going to get away with this? We got away with it. So how did you make that transition to, to, to Nashville and to country? 
Yeah. Um, well, I was, uh, you know, I got my education in Texas. Texas has this amazing music education culture. And I ended up getting a four-year degree at Texas Tech University and my teaching certificate. I actually did my student teaching at Lubbock High School where Buddy Holly went to high school. <laughs> and uh, it was good because I, I learned how to conduct a symphony orchestra and conduct a marching band and conduct a jazz ensemble. Hold that on, really I got to interrupt. Buddy yeah. Holly went there. Did they have a little shrine to him in the high school? I'm sure somewhere like a little statue. And then, well, he's everywhere in Lubbock because he's from Lubbock, you know? Well, he he has to be like the most famous ex-Lubbocker, right? I mean, oh, who else? yeah, except for um, Natalie Maines, the lead singer of the Dixie Chicks. She is okay. actually at Lubbock High School when I was, she was a high school student when I was student teaching. So I think we're like maybe five or six years apart. Crazy. And then I go to the University of North Texas, famed institution, you know, the first college in the United States to offer a degree in jazz, which is like getting a degree in philosophy. But it was just so amazing because I was with all these world class players that were like like 150 drummers that were trying to get into 10 bands. So that was really fun. I did that. Then I kicked around Dallas and I was playing on like McDonald's jingles and and playing in the cool top 40 band in town and playing big bands and teaching in the schools, teaching privately. It was fun. But I knew that I was going to have to go to New York. LA or Nashville. And I got some auditions in Nashville for a gal named Trisha Yearwood, a girl named Dina Carter, and a girl named Barbara Mandrell. So like a new songbird, a really new songbird and an established icon. And every time I went to go to audition, the people in the band were like, kid, you, you're great, but you don't live here. Like we got to give the job somebody else. You, you need to live here. So after the third time of hearing, you need to live here. I packed up my bags, gave my band two weeks notice and moved to Nashville because as much as I knew I, I have the energy for New York city and I love the palm trees and the fast cars and the culture of Los Angeles. I was like, nobody knows me in either of those markets. So let me go where I was getting positive feedback. So I kind of went to Nashville and uh, that was geez, uh, 24 years ago. Wow. We've been talking about following your dream, and I want to help you to follow and succeed at your dream. I've got a special offer for you. Just go to followyourdreampodcast.com slash dreamroadmap, and you will get a complimentary copy of my five-step roadmap to help you to follow and succeed at your dream. That's followyourdreampodcast.com slash dream roadmap and how did you hook up with uh jason aldean how did that come about well you know it wasn't like an official audition like most people think that the music business is completely based on these like soulless cattle call auditions you know 50 guys outside of sir going you know <laughs> but it was really just i was playing in a band with um, our guitar player allison he referred me to this kid named tully kennedy they had a gig it was one of those five sets 45 on 15 off 45 on 15 off and i had to learn like a hundred songs but we didn't get to rehearse so my trick in those situations is to just chart everything out put the charts in alphabetical order have my little metronome for the bpms and so the lead singer would be like wild angels and you turn your book really quick to, to the w's and you go and, it, and you can make the band sound like a, a, a ferrari really if the drummer's great you know the band is only as good as the drummer and so Tully was really impressed with me that day. All three of us got along great. Little did I know, he was putting a band together for this new singer-songwriter named Jason Aldean. And so then we started rehearsing and doing demos and playing around the Southeast. 
And we did that for four years until he got a record deal. So we got a record deal. It was like, I don't need to find session musicians. I don't need to audition a band. I got my guys right here. We get along personally. We get along professionally. Let's go. You know, so it wasn't really an official audition. You know, everybody thinks that show business and the music business being part of show business, everybody's an overnight sensation. So you yes. just said you're out there kicking around for what, four years with Jason Aldean before anybody knew who Jason Aldean probably was. Yeah. And uh, those are the scuffling days. Everybody goes through them. And you're probably playing in bars and clubs and, you know, people aren't listening and you're, you know, yeah. A couple of nights, you're probably playing for the bartender and the waitress because they're the only ones in the place. I mean, describe what the feeling is like when you're at that stage of your career. Well, that that is a magical time because that's when you're you're really involved with making your dreams come to fruition. And it's a struggle. It's a fight. And I will tell everybody that, look, if you want to play Madison Square Garden, you will do it if you treat every gig like Madison Square Garden. So when you're playing for those five drunks at the bar, you just picture making those people true believers. And the next time you go to play, it's going to be 50 people and then 500 and then 5,000. And just from having that kind of like that solidarity as a band and being accountable to each other and having a mission, you know, we were like-minded people. We were birds of a feather. So it was easy for us to, to, to do the hard work. And we were, we were young and youngish, you know, I'm, I'm, I was in my, God, I was in my 30s. And a lot of people, by the time they're 30, they've got a gold record on the wall and they've already retired from the music business and they're like painting houses or they have a construction company, you know? And I, I had the slow burn. I was like, look at, I've got all my thousands of hours of experience. I'm enthusiastic. I got the right instruments. I'm in the right city. All I have to do is just work on this platform with this individual and try to make something happen. And and um, it took a long time. I mean, look at like the meteoric rise of say like a Taylor Swift, like a rocket. Us, it was like, you know that when you're going up the roller coaster and it's so, and it's, oh my God, but you're still going up. And I feel like we're, thank God, thank God for the fans. Jason's career is, is, is still going up because he figured it out. He knows that, that songs make the world go around. We're telling stories about the heartland, everything that happens to Americans between New York and LA. And those are the people that come to our shows there. And my God, they are going to be ravenous when this comes back around. It's going to be so fun. You know, you said something that really resonated with me about if you want to play at Madison Square Garden, you got to treat every gig like you're playing at Madison Square Garden. Years and years ago, there was this little concert called Woodstock, which I happened to be at along with 10 million other people that claim that they wow. were there. But the week before Woodstock, I happened to be up in the area where the concert was happening. I was actually playing in the show band at a hotel that summer. Anyway, the story is I get invited to go to a bungalow colony. Now, for anybody who doesn't know what a bungalow colony is, it's a bunch of little bungalow houses, you know, that families rent for the summer. And there was one part of the bungalow colony where they had kind of a, you know, an open area and they'd have bands perform. And somebody says to me, this is the week before Woodstock. Why don't you go see this band? They're playing in this, in this trailer in, in, a, you know, in, in one of these places. And I go to see him. It's Jethro Tull. Nice. Now, Jethro Tull was a monster band at the time. They didn't play at Woodstock, but they're playing inside of a trailer. And there's five of us there. And they put on a show for two hours as if they were playing 
at Madison Square Garden or Woodstock. It didn't make a difference to them that there were only five people in the trailer. I never forgot that. That's a great lesson. Yeah, you know, their drummer, Don Perry, is a friend of mine. And uh, when did I last see him? Oh, my not quite 50th birthday party. I had my 49th birthday party at a at a pub on Ventura Boulevard, and he came and graced me with his presence. And deep guy, oh, such a great drummer. What an amazing band. Been around forever. Absolutely. So you're playing with Jason Aldean. What was that moment when all of a sudden you made it? I don't know. What is that? What is what is making it? Everybody describes success and making it differently, but definitely you could feel like energy shifts, like probably like the first six or seven years of playing with Jason. This is this is us playing little rock club and then county fairs and then state fairs and then doing shows with Miranda Lambert and Dirk Bentley, where we would switch off headlining, you know, and we would be in half basketball arenas. And then opening up for people, I was schlepping my drums around, doing my own drum teching through those six years. But then when he, when I, we finally got a big crew and we had in-ear monitors and it went from like one bus in a trailer with 12 people to like two buses and two trailers to three buses. Now we got a semi truck. Then you have a lighting guy and a mon- it just grows and you're like, oh, this is going somewhere. So that kind of that that year was 2009 when I kind of felt like this shift. And I was like. This is going to be around for a while. And it all comes down to the song. You know, he released two songs that would just kind of like added to this kind of meteoric rise. And so I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I made it yet because I still have so many things that I want to accomplish, you know. Just staying with the Jason thing for a moment. Tell me the, the, the best memory that you have of playing in concert with Jason Aldean. Hmm. Well, you know, some of the, a lot of these venues are, are such bucket lists for people. So when you're thinking like, okay, two nights at Madison Square Garden, Hollywood Bowl, two nights at Red Rocks, three nights at Wrigley Field, Fenway, it's like, oh my God. Like for me, um, Red Rocks was really cool because I used to watch that YouTube video where I was on MTV like twice a day when they were playing Red Rocks and they had the fire and the, it was cold outside there. So their breath, you could see their breath. I was like, Oh my God, I'm on the same stage that you two did. The, but probably the Hollywood ball. It's such an amazing, like the Beatles played there. Hendrix played there. Everyone's played there. And I'm looking out at all those little box seats with all these Angelinos and they're eating their tea and sipping on their white wine. And I'm like, we are rocking these people's faces off. Awesome. It was incredible. It really was. You have arrived. Okay, so you got you got all these other things that you're doing in your life. Let's talk about some of that. You're an actor, you're a speaker, you're a podcast host. Tell us about that. Well, it's the um I guess it's the Ryan Seacrest model. It's like, uh, it's like how many different forms of media can I, can I be on here? And, you know, somebody's going to get the job. So why not me? And until I get the job, why not create these different outlets for myself? So podcast has been great. You know, I, the, I, I reached out to, to my tribe on social media. And I said, what are some good names for my podcast? And I got some real zingers, some really good ones. And then I thought to myself, Johnny Carson, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, just call it the Rich Redmond show. Like, you know, and then kind of we tipped our hat to like, it's kind of like if a, a late night TV show and a wacky morning radio show had a baby and that's the show. And then hopefully an hour later, people are entertained. They learn something, they laugh. So it's real fun. The Rich Redmond show, it's on all platforms. And 
So that's been really, really fun. And I just celebrated my 100th episode with a childhood hero of mine, a drummer named Kenny Aronoff, who played in the Mellencamp band. I was like, you know, I'm going to save Kenny for episode 100. And there's something about sticking with a podcast to 100 episodes because you'll have a lot of naysayers and a lot of negative analogies. It's like, what is this guy doing now? And then once you make it to 100 episodes, people are like, oh, this guy's not going. This is good. I'm Maybe I'll listen to it. So that's been kind of fun. And in motivational speaking for 12 or 13 years, I speak on a concept called CRASH, which stands for Commitment, Relationships, Attitude, Skill, and Hunger. So this is basically a, a mantra for successful living for people in any walk of life and how to attract success in their personal and professional life. And I share that with companies like Cisco's and your Microsoft's and your Hewlett Packard's. And then I'll literally go and I'll speak to kindergartners or at-risk youth, or I'll talk to music programs at colleges. So that's been really fun. And then the acting thing I've been doing for six years, got my SAG card, got my butt in a couple of horror films on Netflix. I study all the time and I've got a great agent out here in Los Angeles, a great hosting agent because they see me as being a host, like I'm probably going to be doing some of that. So that's a goal of mine to um, get a big hosting job. It could be a game show. It could be a, it could be a net thing. It could be a video on demand show. I just know that like drumming, I am not stopping until it happens. Okay, I got to stop you. you. You're in horror shows on on Netflix. I want to hear some names. Okay, so listen, it's 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 not huge, but and it's my lane, and it was a great opportunity. But I had a my gig was a movie called Reawakened, and I played a detective. This thing, I, I don't think it made it to Netflix. I think it made it to like some video on demand services. And if you're like in a hotel room in China, like you could like pull it up and you'd be like, oh, I'm going to be scared for two hours. And then the next one was this cool movie called The All Light Blend, where I played like a Casey Kasem, like over caffeinated DJ. So like my screen time is probably all, all of like two minutes, but man, the credits roll and there's my name. It's not as a drummer. It's as an, as an actor. And my parents got to see that. And I was like, yeah. And then I got my butt on a TV show called on the sci-fi channel called Happy. That's so cool. You know, when I formed Project Grand Slam, my band back in 2007, we got very lucky and we got placed on a television show, which was a hit TV show at the time called Lipstick Jungle, starring Brooke Shields. And uh, they had the band on the show and they put us up on a stage. We played five songs in the show because it was part of a, a setting in the show episode. But they actually gave me a couple of lines in the show. And that was the most terrifying thing that I've ever done, because I had, as I said, two lines to say. Probably took me 50 takes to get those two lines right. And then they wound up dropping one of the lines from the episode. But I'm still in the episode. And, you know, I still get my residuals. Here it is. Um, Ten years later, I get my two dollars and eighty-three cents, like clockwork, every six months. It's a lot of fun. Tell me about challenges. You've had such great successes, but everybody faces challenges, and I'm wondering what your challenges were on the way up and after you got to the top. Ah, oh, well, thanks, man. Yeah, um, you know, people are the gatekeepers to all success in life. You know, I mean, you got to have a resume, you got to have a business card, you got to have a website. But for the most part, it's other people that that give you these opportunities. And so for me, going to school in Lubbock and then Denton and then going to Dallas, you know, I had to relocate. And every time I relocated, I had to re, you know, meet people and reprove myself. So 
even when I went to, went to Nashville with all these accomplishments and my master's degree, I just literally had to start crashing parties, shaking hands and meeting people and people would give me an opportunity. I got to say a lot of the people that I met 25 years ago are still my friends and I do mix business and pleasure. These people are still calling me, which is, I'm very grateful. Um, but that's the thing is just finding those like-minded people that are going to give you those opportunities to do what you want to do. And me not wanting to rot on the vine, me wanting to stay inspired and relevant and moving forward in my life, I'm doing the same thing now in, in Hollywood. I'm literally crashing parties and taking every opportunity I can. And when somebody gets cracks the door, for me, I try to kick it open. And um, but that's really the thing. And then and then when you start to achieve some success, you know, scheduling is is so it's such like Tetris because I spent my my time either or on a tour bus or in an airport or in Nashville or on the road. It's just it's just going. I'm a troubadour. So scheduling is very very. I have a color coded eye calendar. But for the most part, you know, first couple of years, I feel rough, a lot of ramen noodle, a lot of uh, unemployment day jobs. I was a kindergarten teacher. I parked cars. I waited tables. And I just waited for that right opportunity to come. And I, and I did. And thank God I came. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rich, you know that this is a podcast for dreamers. And um, mm -hmm. I always like to ask all of my guests, what would be your advice to somebody that's got a dream has never pursued it or has tried to pursue it, but it has not been successful, what would you say to that person? I would say the first thing you need to do is get your dream in one or two digestible, very succinct statements or sentences, a mantra, write it down because it's just floating around in the ether, you know, like the matrix and you know, Reeves is going to come and like, until you like write it down. So when you write it down, it gets real. And then read that thing every morning and every night as much as humanly possible. Repeat those statements. My statement was, I will be a top call recording and touring drummer band in Nashville. One sentence. And every day you get up and you push that ball down the field by taking actionable, digestible steps. So have your dreams and you break that down into digestible goals daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, where you want to be in five years. And then you just go after it. And if you're positive and you're enthusiastic and you believe in yourself and all sorts of cool events and people and places and circumstances will come across your path to help you with that goal. And then don't quit. Never quit because if you quit, you're at the end of the line. So yeah, be positive, be enthusiastic, write down your dreams and then go after them. Great words of wisdom. I want to thank my guest, Rich Redmond, for being on the show. Uh, Rich, where can people reach you, follow you, find you? Uh, richredmond.com. It's richredmond.com. It's kind of like my hub. You can learn about all the things that I do and I respond to all messages. And then on all the platforms, whether it be my podcast, YouTube, I'm on Instagram, you know, and it's just my name, Rich Redmond on all the socials. Okay. You've been listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am your host again, Robert Miller. Remember, you can get your complimentary dream roadmap just by going to followyourdreampodcast.com slash dreamroadmap. This is my five-step method for you to pursue and succeed at your dream. And please feel free to email me at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. Again, Robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. 
And you can listen to all of my music. It's available at projectgrandslam.com and the pgsstore.com. And if you liked what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And now you're going to hear the entire song that we played a bit of at the beginning of this episode. It's called Stockbridge Fanfare. The song is on the album East Side Sessions that my band, Project Grand Slam, released in January 2020, just before the world closed down from the pandemic. We were very, very lucky. I wrote the song as a kind of love letter to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which is one of my favorite places on earth. Stockbridge is, is small town America personified. It was the home of Norman Rockwell. It's the town that Arlo Guthrie wrote about in his song, Alice's Restaurant. And a guy named James Taylor lives very close by to Stockbridge, and he plays each year at Tanglewood, which is the area's very famous concert venue. And this song, Stockbridge Fanfare, definitely has a kind of James Taylorish type of vibe. So here it is, and thanks for listening. See you next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.
Full feet. 